On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about something that happened 50 years ago, namely Pierre Trudeau's invocation of the War Measures Act, which the Premier of Quebec now says, we want an apology for. 50 years later, they want an apology. Are they going to get it? We'll talk about that. We're also going to be talking about physician-assisted suicide. Whether you agree or whether you disagree, there are people who are very concerned about the changes coming to the law that is in front of the House of Commons or soon will be that will expand who is eligible. You do not any longer have to be in the process of dying. Is this a good thing or is this very scary? Uh, we're going to talk to Sammy Joe Small, former Olympic goalie for Canada, got the a new book out, also very involved in women's hockey and trying to grow the game. And then we're going to talk about those concert riders that artists have that are totally strange and weird and bizarre and diva-esque. Worst ones? Well, we'll tell you about some of them. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are hearing that Quebec Premier Yves-Francois Blanchet has announced that his province now wants an apology for something that happened 50 years ago. It wants the federal government to apologize for applying or bringing in the War Measures Act half a century ago. Now, many of you will know the story, most of you probably. Those who don't, hang in there, we'll get to it in just a second. But this becomes, obviously, if you follow the politics of this, it becomes very awkward for our current prime minister because this is now asking him to apologize for a controversial move that his own father made while he was the prime minister. It all becomes very interesting and tangled and complex. Let me bring in... Darcy Janesh, who is the author of The Making of the October Crisis, Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ. Darcy, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me, Scott. Most of the people, as I said off the top, I, I'm assuming most of the people listening know what this story is about, know the background of the October crisis, even if only the cursory version of it. But if, if you can, take a minute or two, which is asking a lot because I know you've written an entire book, so I'm asking you to reduce it to the Reader's Digest version. But give us give the people the Reader's Digest version of what the October crisis was all about. Well, the crisis was the culmination of seven and a half years of urban terrorism, uh, you know, caused by this underground revolutionary movement known as the Front de Liberation du Quebec. And in the seven and a half years, there were over 200 bombings, most of them in the city of Montreal, dozens of armed robberies, uh, armory heists, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of property damage, six people died, dozens were injured in these bombings. And that all happened between spring of 63 and mid-July 1970. Then on Monday, October 5th, 1970, this group calling themselves the Liberation Cell kidnapped James Cross, who was a British trade commissioner to Canada. And five days later, another group uh, operating on the south shore uh, opposite of Montreal kidnapped Pierre Laporte, who was a deputy premier of Quebec, minister of labor and immigration. And uh, that prompted uh, Mayor Jean Drapeau and Premier Robert Bourassa, Robert Bourassa, to request the federal government to impo- invoke the War Measures Act in order to get control of a very explosive situation in the city of Montreal, in which they were facing the prospect of having thousands of students and perhaps union members 
demonstrating in the streets of Montreal uh, in support of these kidnappers. And what the authorities feared was rioting, bloodshed, and chaos in the streets. And so they very wisely made the decision that preserving uh, order, order for the many had to take precedence over the civil rights of the few. And they requested emergency measures in order to get this situation under control. And uh, along the way, the police, the Montreal Police Department and the Sûreté du Québec, which was the provincial police force, arrested some 497 Quebecers. Uh, and about 480 of them were never charged with any criminal offenses. So this is what Yves-Francois Blanchette is demanding an apology for the War Measures Act and the arrest of these 497 people. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Darcy, but listening to you describe this and a few key words you've put in there leads me to believe that you think it was not an improper thing to have done. Am I correct? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the invocation, first of all, the War Measures Act, it was a relic of the First World War that had been left on the books for all those years, I mean, 50 years. And uh, it was the only tool in the toolbox when you were suddenly faced with what was, in effect, the gravest uh, peacetime crisis of the 20th century in this country. So, yes, it was an appropriate, me- it, was a, it was an unpleasant thing to do, but it was a necessary thing to do. And And... One thing I didn't realize until I saw this story pop up is I had no idea, and maybe it doesn't, but I had no idea this sting lingers as a real sore point in Quebec. I'd never heard that it was still an issue. Well, you know, once the October crisis was over, English Canada just went back to, you know, business as usual and forgot all about this. But, you know, in Quebec, they have this license plate that says, Je me souviens, I remember. And... Unfortunately, it's the separatist movement that has made it their mission to remember these events and actually to spin a revisionist narrative. They've never accepted the federal government's handling of this crisis. And they've presented Quebecers with a false narrative that the federal government, Trudeau in particular, used the October crisis as a pretext for crushing the separatist movement. Uh, by invoking the War Measures Act and by allowing the police to arrest these people. And that's totally false. Pierre Trudeau had no fear of the separatist movement at the time. He was ready to take them on in uh, public debates, in an election, in any time. He was ready to take them on. You know, it's just garbage. And so uh, it has remained a hot-button issue in Quebec, particularly in sovereignist circles, for half a century. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Darcy, I I wonder as I hear you describe some of these things and explain this, do you get the sense that this is really, uh, that Blanchette is really looking for an apology because it's really front of everyone's mind? Or is this a bit of a cheeky way to score some political points, knowing who the prime minister is and who the prime minister was? And let's bring it up again and remind everyone in Quebec who didn't like Trudeau, who's the prime minister there now. Well, you you know, from a historical perspective, there's not a shred of legitimacy to this, not one iota. But from a political perspective, I mean, this Blanchette is a slippery fish. And he's the leader of the Bloc Québécois. And the Bloc Québécois currently holds 32 seats uh, in Quebec. 
Justin Trudeau has 40. Now, those 32 seats basically denied Trudeau uh, a majority government in 2019 because he took all those seats. Now, this is an opportunity, first of all, to embarrass uh, the current prime minister for because, of course, his father uh, brought right. invoked the War Measures Act. And uh, Justin Trudeau can't possibly grant an apology for that reason. At the same time, it will put Justin Trudeau uh, offside or on the wrong side of a significant swath of public opinion in Quebec. And this is exactly what uh, Blanchette wants to do. And, of course, the Conservatives are also going to uh, oppose this, and they hold 12 seats or 10 seats in Quebec. So Blanchette wants to hold on to those 32 seats that he currently has. He wants to steal some from the Quebec, uh, from the uh, Conservatives. He'd also like to steal a few more from uh, the Liberals. And so this is really a very clever political stunt uh, that's really focused on the next election, but as I say, has zero legitimacy from a historical perspective. And so it presents a real dilemma for Justin Trudeau today. I mean, uh, if, if uh, Blanchette and his Bloc Québécois are able to hold on to their 32 seats that they currently have, and if they were able to poach a few more from the Liberals in the next election, Justin's not going to get another majority. And so it's, you know, he could be one of the, the, the quickest flameouts in Quebec politics. You know, you go from a minor, big majority government to minority, minority, doesn't look good on him. So, yeah. Well, and I don't think, I mean, looking at the political landscape, I'm not sure that the conservative seats are at too much risk because I, I don't, it's the, it's the liberal seats that seem to be flipping and flopping between a lot of times between the bloc and the liberals. They seem to be battling for themselves. So absolutely as a political move, very clever. I do wonder though, is this the, again, because I'd not heard that this was still an issue and that, that's on me. Mm. But it's just not something we hear about all the time. Is this something that you think really can build up some momentum and gather some steam there because Quebecers are now getting fired up about it again? Or is this a story for a day or two because it was just a, a fun little thing to bring up and then it goes away? No, I think it taps into uh, a, a very widely held sentiment in Quebec that the federal government didn't handle the uh, October crisis properly, that they really brought down the hammer on Quebec and clobbered Quebec. And you see, <clears throat> the problem is, like I said, for instance, my book is the only account in English Canada in 50 years of these events. We just walked away from the whole story after the October crisis. But in Quebec, there's been a substantial body of literature produced on this, uh, this uh, crisis all written by ardent nationalists, committed separatists, or former terrorists. And they've spun this revisionist narrative mm. that's uh, full of outlandish fabrications. The, the use of uh, the deployment of Canadian soldiers in Quebec, which was requested by the Quebec government, by the way, has been called the Occupation of Quebec. The War Measures Act was requested by the mayor of Montreal and the premier of Quebec which, of course, makes this a notion of an apology patently absurd, that we should apologize for something that the mayor of Montreal and the premier of Quebec requested. But you see, for, for the past 35, 40 years, all of these big voices in Quebec, whether they're historians, uh, academics, you know, political journalists, have been banging the same drum, singing the same tune about how Quebec was mistreated during the October crisis. 
They've elevated these 497 people who were detained uh, under the War Measures Act, elevated them to the status of martyrs and patriots. And so there's been a widely disseminated and I can think deeply absorbed narrative within Quebec about how these events played out. And it was all to the detriment of Quebec. And, you know, it, it takes all the responsibility off the terrorists and the criminals mm-hmm. who, who kidnapped and murdered people. Uh, it, you know, that's where the whole focus has shifted from perpetrators to politicians who are simply doing what they thought best at a moment of grave national crisis. The book, for those who somehow don't remember, weren't alive to remember, or would like to just be reminded, uh, The Making of the October Crisis, Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ by Darcy Jenish. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it other places as well. Darcy, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm quite sure you're aware that since 2016, this country has permitted physician-assisted suicide. But when that law came in, it was for a very select, carefully defined group of people. Basically, you must be dying, actively dying to qualify. Now, whether you agree or whether you disagree with the law, with the concept That narrow definition of who was eligible at least provided some assurances this was a worst-case scenario thing. However, at the time that law was being passed, uh, I was here talking on the show about my concern about what I believed would be an inevitable slippery slope, that once you open Pandora's box, it only gets pushed open wider and wider. Because why would, if a person who's terminal, why would they have greater rights than someone who was not terminal, but who may not be comfortable or happy? It's at the time I pointed out that eventually someone's going to sue claiming discrimination because they didn't fall into that category, but they should have the same opportunity and the doors will be flung wide open. Well, I'm not always right. In fact, a lot of times people will say, no, you're rarely right. Well, this one I was. And now a revised version of the law is being brought forward to allow those with degenerative conditions to seek doctors aided death. So you don't have to be dying. You just have to be not doing so well and it'll pass. And I'll say it again. I don't believe this is where it's going to stop. I want to bring in Dr. Ramona Coelho. She is a doctor in London, Ontario. Uh, she has been vocal about her opposition to forcing doctors to provide physician-assisted suicide or to help people find doctors who will if it violates that doctor's conscience. Uh, doctor, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here with you, Scott. Um, you, you have argued uh, strenuously against forcing doctors to participate either hands-on or by directing people to other doctors who would do that. What happens now that you may have to do it for someone who's not even dying? Yeah, well, um, already doctors, especially in Ontario, are in a very difficult spot with our college um, mandating that we facilitate or arrange um, for suicidal patients, uh, a consult with someone who will go through and give them a lethal injection. And uh, not just me, I'm not really sure if Ontario doctors are going to be able to handle this bill. And I I don't think that most doctors understand this bill and what it means. Um, This bill will mean that basically anyone who is disabled or chronically ill 
can die uh, by lethal injection uh, within 90 days of their request. Um, How does that not violate the Hippocratic Oath? I mean, I, I know that this is something people argue all the time, but you have taken an oath to do no harm. And whether or not you agree or disagree with the idea of someone who's terminal, at least they are on the way to dying. This one, they're not necessarily. No, it's actually a huge conundrum for all of us who went into medicine to preserve uh, the safety of a patient. So when someone comes with us with suicidal wishes or death wishes, which are often a sign of grieving or pain or some unmet need, we offer suicide prevention and pain control and journeying with these patients. And, and actually, now they're saying, well, when someone comes with a suicidal uh, request someone has a death wish because they're disabled or suffering, uh, we're supposed to pass them on to someone who will give them a lethal injection. But actually, their request for suicide is a legitimate one. And that's totally at odds with the Hippocratic Oath, which is a life affirming oath that our job is not to decide whose lives are valuable and can go on and live and we're going to help them, and other people's not so much, they're going to get a lethal injection. No, my job is when everybody comes before me, I try to do everything I can do, every creative, every possibility that I can to try to meet them in their suffering and, and get rid of it. So it's not possible to uh, stand by your Hippocratic Oath in my mind and with this Bill C-7. Well, and there are groups, uh, including the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, who have pointed something else out that that I, I think is important, but it seems to be getting lost in this. The message here that if you have a disability, somehow being dead would be better than living with a disability, which I think sends the opposite message of what we've been trying to tell people about how to treat and look after and care for people with disabilities for decades. Yeah, I can't agree with you more, Scott. This further marginalizes people who already find themselves um, with less. And I mean, COVID, COVID-19 is a very interesting situation we're in, where the government will go through, you know, precautions and different measures to protect our vulnerable. And actually, I think that's great, right? The idea that the principle of protecting the common good is a beautiful thing. But then here, they're stripping every single safeguard, much, much more than the Truchon case called for. And, and, and the repercussions will be that when someone is suicidal, who is disabled or ill, that that will be seen as a, a claim to be like, well, your life was not that valuable. We agree with you, so we're going to give you a lethal injection. I, 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 the, the other thing about this, and we've got a lot to talk about still, but the other thing is that the, the law, this proposed law is saying the person who isn't dying but wants to have a physician-assisted suicide must be experiencing, and the word they're using is intolerable suffering. How, how do we come up with a definition of intolerable that captures this? Yeah, and I think that's the problem with this bill in general. Like nothing is concrete, nothing is enforceable, everything is the physician's perspective, even about dying. So if someone agrees that they want medical aid in dying, they want, or let's call it what it is, it's just administer death because you don't even have to be dying anymore. It's not medical assistance in dying. It's like aid in suicide at any point in your life. Um, but, um, 
sorry, repeat the question. Um, well, no, it's just we, we're, we're trying to, we're putting a word intolerable, but it's like when the federal yeah. government says, well, we're working for the middle class, and then we ask them to define what's the middle class, and nobody can. Yeah, exactly. Intolerable is the same thing. What does that mean? And the whole bill runs like that, and that's part of the bill. Like they say, you know, what else they say, which is very worrisome, is that a patient can come to me who's chronically ill. I can... I have to ensure that they know about services, that they are offered services. But it doesn't say what happens if they decline them or if the wait time is like six months to get psychiatry or a year to get into the pain clinic. Um, so but 90 days to 90 days to have physician-assisted suicide. Exactly. Let me take a very quick a break. right to get yeah. medically administered death, but it's not a medical, it's not a health right to get palliative care or psychiatry mm. or anything to rescue these patients. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, just before the break there, you said something which it took me a second for it really to click in, and that is that you can go, if this bill passes, with one of these disabilities and get physician-assisted suicide in less time than potentially you could get in for services to help you deal with it, which seems entirely horrendously backwards, that maybe there's a solution or a cure, not a cure, but a, a comfort here, but you'll never know because you may already be dead. Exactly. I mean, this is going to make Canada the most permissive regime in the world for euthanasia. It means that, for example, I take care of a, a lot. Of, I take care of disabled people and refugees in London, and I used to do that in, in their homes in Montreal. And um, this means that someone who has a death wish who comes to me, uh, let's say, like a new diagnosis, multiple sclerosis, or something they've been struggling with longer fibromyalgia, with depress- depression, and has a death wish and knows about medical aid in dying, and they're demanding this that the government is saying, yes, within 90 days, we're going to rush to give you this request. But it takes, in London, Ontario at least, longer than that for my patient to have any concept of relief. So my fibro patients, I can start them on medications, but getting them to a pain clinic is going to take more than three months. Um, For my patient who might have a a new diagnosis of rheumatism, but also with depression, um, it's going to take longer than three months to get them into a rheumatologist or to start the regular standards of care. So what this, what this bill is saying is that patients can get suicide before they have the standard of care. We're never going to get a chance with some of these patients to actually go through what, what they should have, what, what they have a right to have. They're not getting access to that, but they and, have and- access to a lethal injection. And, you know, look, I know that sometimes when people talk about a slippery slope, other people slough them off and go, oh, come on. But we're seeing it right in front of us here happening. This is the exact thing. The It had to be only terminal was the original thing. And we're not going to change it. Well, now we're changing it. And here's the next one. We hear all the time. Now, there, there is a, in this bill that's coming in front of uh, House of Commons, there is a specific exclusion for mental health that if you are soul. depressed or whatever. As a Pardon me? criteria. The sole criteria, yes. Yeah. But but look, if we've already moved from terminal now to other things, and we hear all the time, and we believe it now that mental health is a legitimate illness, just like a physical condition, we don't mock that. We don't say mental health is not really the same. We say it's just the same as a kind of illness. Tell me how I am to believe that when somebody who's depressed or has a mental health issue and goes to court and says, no, you're discriminating against me because my illness 
I'm blocked out. Tell me why I shouldn't believe that in time, a year, two, five, we're not going to allow people with depression to ask for this. No, you're, you're quite right. And I mean, that that's the next court case that's going to happen. And, and the sense that the courts have done a very bad job, right? They allow people to die for osteoarthritis. They've given, made over to the masses as a right. But, you know, the reason that euthanasia or us helping people die was illegal in the first place was so that vulnerable people don't get coerced, like like family neglect, financial neglect, um, all of these different things that can play into a suicidal request. Um, that was why we, we said, like, this is not the way we're going to go for anybody. But once we decide that autonomy, this idea like it's my right, for a small group, there's, there's no way to stop other victims, I would call them victims who are suicidal, from also getting their, their wish because the co- continuity of logic demands that autonomy, if it's a right, well, it's a right for all. Yeah, it seems inevitable. It does. And, and so again, for the people who say, well, wait a second, I'm very much in favor of physician-assisted suicide for someone who has cancer. And Well, whether you agree or disagree, it's, as I say, it seems inevitable that we're heading towards something that was never intended to be. But when you crack open the door, eventually it gets kicked open and suddenly you've got a bunch of things to deal with that you never hoped for and never anticipated. And uh, Dr. Like, Sorry, go ahead. Can- oh, for cancer, you were saying, you know, like it was just for cancer. So they're taking away the 10 days of contemplation that someone needs to get made. That means that if someone has a terminal diagnosis, they can receive a lethal injection on the same day they get their diagnosis. And, you know, some cancers, my patients, when they hear cancer, they are devastated. They don't hear the rest of the conversation. But a lot of chemotherapies, a lot of game changers with cancer, that often people can live 7, 15 years, but they're not going to be able to have the chance if in their grief and existential crisis they ask, for medical aid in dying, and they're granted at the same day. It is uh, it is troubling. Absolutely it is. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Dr. Ramona Coelho, really appreciate the time as always. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, Scott. Uh, one other thing to continue to just contemplate, again, whether you agree or disagree, it's the slippery slope that we become concerned about. Uh, it was only two years ago that the Hospital for Sick Children drafted a policy in preparation for the day when children can decide for doctor-assisted suicide. So if you say there's no slippery slope, even the hospitals are saying it's coming. It's coming. And nobody, I don't think, ever thought that that was going to be a good idea, but it's coming. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I saw this book that was out and I said, I got to read this, but I'll tell you why, because there are not necessarily, and you know, times are changing for sure, And times will continue to change, which is good. And over the years to come and the decades to come, we will learn more and more and become more and more familiar with more and more female athletes and female teams, especially from this country. But I think it's fair to say, and I, I, you know, I, I don't believe it's offensive. I think it's accurate that to now there aren't that many teams that most people in the country either watched or know the names of a bunch of the players, household names. And I think two teams come to mind. One is the women's soccer team from the Olympics a few years ago. You'll remember that one. Uh, The Christine Sinclair game where she had a hat trick and Melissa Tancredi from Ancaster was on that team uh, and then won a bronze medal. And you'll remember that game. And that was an amazing performance. And then everybody suddenly knew these women. They were stars. The other one 
would be the Canadian Olympic women's hockey team. And that's, I don't even mean just one team. I mean, that's over a number of years, a bunch of different people who have played on it, but that one as well, I think huge name recognition and at the forefront for many, many years on that team, one of those whose name you will know, who you watched play, who helped bring home gold medals and silver medals and world championships and on and on and on is someone by the name of Sammy Joe Small who joins me now. Sammy Joe, how are you tonight? Glad you could join us. I'm great, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm thrilled. I mean, we don't get that many days when we can have, you know, multiple gold medalists and world champions and everything. We try and keep our guests like, you know, lower than that. We, you're really upping the ante here on the show. So that's good. Plus... Well, that's very kind of you. I don't know if I'm umping, upping the ante at all, but I'll try my best for sure. Well, 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 when I read your book today and I read that you played shinny with Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip, you've just reached a new level. How did you end up playing shinny with Gord Downey? What, I, that was an incredible story. Um, and really looking back at it now, such an incredible man and such a, you know, just an inspiration. But at the time, it was a teammate of mine, Jaina Hefford, who's from Kingston. And I was playing, uh, obviously, with her at the Olympics. She's a Hall of Famer. And she just asked me if I wanted to come play shinny with... Um, some of our other teammates and um, some some friends, as she said it. And uh, I knew that she knew the guys from the Tragically Hip, but um, it wasn't really until we got there that it really dawned on me. And we played outdoor shinny, and that meant that everybody else was just in skates and gloves. But the two goalies, which ended up being Gord and I, um, both had to put our goalie gear on, which was um, – we did at Gord's house and then walked over and it was incredible to be in a room with him because he was so passionate about goaltending and just an incredible man. And was some, uh, I feel incredibly privileged that I have got to do that, but got to know him really well then over the years as well. And he became a, a huge women's hockey fan. So would that be the highlight that, I mean, that would obviously be the highlight of all of your athletic life. It's either got to forget the Olympics. It's either got to be that or throwing the discus 158.8 feet in university. I'm not sure which one would be the real high point for you. Well, I think that, I mean, meeting Gord and meeting some of the other uh, musicians <laughs> was certainly incredible. And my brother is huge into the music scene. So for him, that was a big deal. But to be honest, for me, um, you know, I was, uh, I was a hip fan and um, it was, it kind of normalized who these guys were. I got to play in multiple Juno cups and um, yeah, I definitely had some very vast different experiences. Um, you, as you mentioned, throwing the discus at Jab and Javelin at Stanford. Um, all of these are experiences that I talk about in the book. Um, and I think it eventually is what made me um, the goaltender that I was, but also the ability to have all these different experiences is just, I think what brought me so much joy and I just wanted to share some of those experiences with other people, the experiences we went through together as a team. And, you know, it wasn't all serious all the time, but we certainly did become a dynasty. And I just feel um, incredibly proud to have been part of that team for so long, but to know these incredible women was so special too. Well, there are a ton of great stories in this book. One of the other ones, I want to get into a bunch of stuff, but just one other thing that really leapt off the page, and I had to ask you about this. You mentioned at one point, because you went to Stanford, you were on track and field scholarship and played hockey as well. You mentioned your former Stanford classmate, Tiger Woods. Was he like classmate, classmate, or was he just like the same <laughs> year? Uh, so he was the same year. Um, at Stanford, is actually quite small. There's like only 6,000 undergrad students, and 
So we had a class of 1,500 as freshmen. They say, you know, quotation marks. Um, we took some entry-level classes together, but where I got to know them the most was actually I ended up hurting my shoulder, um, had to get shoulder surgery. He ended up having uh, two cysts removed from the back of his knee. And so we went through rehab together, I say in quotation marks now, because it, it certainly could mean something very different. But we went through physio and rehab together um, in the uh, sports medical clinic at Stanford. So I got to know him. Then he hadn't gone on to win the Masters at that this point. He was a U.S. amateur champ at that point. So, I mean, he was a, he was a big deal. Don't get me wrong. But there was swimmers that had gone to the Olympics and had multiple medals. And there was people that had achieved on this same level at Stanford. So he was, you know, just another kind of athlete. Um, and yeah, so I did get to know him and yeah, we were, I guess, in quotation marks, I'll say, um, classmates. It's, as I say, these are great, sort of great opportunities. I mean, it's one of the things that being an elite athlete, whether it's pro or being an Olympian or, or both, uh, you know, you get these opportunities to do things, which are very, very cool. Uh, you, you write about one thing, especially in this, but no, like, again, there's so many things, there's so many stories and we have limited time, but I want to jump to one part because I think it's a moment that I'm so impressed that you read it all. That's amazing. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, it is a great book. It really is. It's, and by the way, I should give the title because that's kind of important since I forgot to, it's called the role I played and it is just newly out and it's by Sammy Joe small. And I'll remind people again later if they are interested, but, um, one moment that everybody is going to remember because everybody watched it was the gold medal game in Salt Lake City. And the reason that even if people right now are going, wait a second, which game was that? There are two things that come to mind for that one. One of them, that was the game where the American referee um, kind of lost mm-hmm. her mind and started calling every penalty on Canada and kept Canada shorthanded the entire game. And I was thrilled to see Sammy Joe. That I mean, everything I understand, you're a very lovely and nice person, but you didn't pull your punches with her and you mentioned her and you, <laughs> you, you, you have not forgotten the name Stacey Livingston, obviously. Well, you know, in writing the book, um, I tried to bring the reader into the story with me. So going along the journey with me. But I, I also went back and looked. I mean, this is you know almost 20 years ago now. I went and looked at some box scores, I and I watched a lot of game tape. So in particular, that final game, um, Scott, I really hadn't watched since we won. Um, we had one day when we came back from the Olympic Games, uh, right after the Olympics, that, you know, we had come back to Calgary because that's where we were centralized, and everybody was about to disperse across the country. And um, we had sort of a going away party where we watched the game for the first time, the team together. And uh, people had to do shots for every um, penalty that was called. And so needless <laughs> to say, it was just an over-the-top party. Um, but so I can't say that that really counts as having watched it for me. However, fast forward to watching it for this book. And I, what I realized was that, and I, you know, I say this in the book often, is that I think Stacey Livingston just got nervous. I think she just got overwhelmed. Um, because the penalties that she called were often the wrong number or the wrong type of penalty. Like they may have been a penalty, but she called the wrong thing. Um, and then a full ice, open ice hit that would not get called at all. Like it, it just, it seemed, um, and in fact, many people remember, I think the penalty minutes were ended up being like 26 minutes against us and like eight against them. Something like that. Yep. Something like that. But it until I rewatched it again, I didn't realize that the first eight minutes were against them. Like it went 
way one side um, initially, and then all of a sudden it just went way the other side. And um, yeah, it was interesting rewatching them because the raw like people that were on the bench would be having to go and serve a penalty because she got the numbers wrong. Or um, yeah, it just seemed like this was you know a moment that this is a human who just got way in over her head. And I think it just became, I don't know. I just don't think she did a, a great job in that moment. Now it's not to say she's not, you know, probably wasn't a fantastic referee. And in fact, our coach had to decide on her as being the Olympic gold medal referee. So both teams had to, to agree on it. And um, yeah, it just, it shows you that those people are human really at the end of the day. But, but you- I, I wanted to be truthful and honest with what I saw because the advantage point that I have had, and you haven't mentioned yet, but that I was sitting on the bench watching this happen, um, it was almost surreal trying the parade of, pe- of teammates going to the bench. And I think the, the biggest thing about that game was the composure that everybody else kept to just kind of keep moving forward, keep plowing forward. And there is the odd moment of break, but for the most mo- part, we played um, shorthanded and we're still able to become Olympic champions. So I think that well, was you guys may have stayed composed. Sammy Joe, you make you guys may have stayed composed, but I can tell you there were TV sets all over the country that were having shoes thrown at them and a lot of not nice words being uttered. So, uh, I mean, it was um, I don't know what it was what it was like in the dressing room between periods, but it was um, it, you know people were were ticked and and that game also very memorable to a lot of people because that was the game that we learned after that Haley Wickenheiser had said that the Americans were, had told you guys, the Americans have put a Canadian flag on the floor and we're walking all over it in the sign of disrespect. All these years later, do you believe that story was actually true or was that a great slight nose stretcher, but a little thing to get the team going and a, and a great motivator? It's in, it's interesting because I work as a professional speaker and so speaking from the stage often we'll do Q&A at the end and that's the most asked question. Is it really, eh? get 20 years later and I personally don't think it happened. I think that the way that I write about it in the book is in between the periods, uh, our captain, Kathy Campbell, who is this amazing captain, passionate, um, stands up on the, her, her bench and tears in her eyes, says that the Americans have our flag on the floor and how disrespectful and, um, you know, we got to prove to them that uh, we can do this, basically. Basically trying to say that we are better people than the other team. So we are, you know, we're fired up and everybody's mad and we go out. And at that point, we're up 3-1. We end up winning the game. So the motivation worked. It was amazing. Um, but I think it's one of those stories that perhaps was meant to stay in the dressing room. And it wasn't until Haley Wickenheiser sought out Don Cherry with um, – you know, Haley's foaming at the mouth on national TV, going off on this rant about how the Americans had our flag on the floor and we want to know if they want us to sign it. And she was fired up. And so immediately the media went over to the American girls who are distraught. They've lost. They, you know, they got the silver medal and um, asked the question, why do you have the Canadian flag on the floor? And the girls were bewildered. And, you know, what are you talking about? Like, we have no idea what you mean. So, I mean, did it happen or did it not happen? I mean, Cass says she heard from a rink staff, um, but I do, you know, there's some of the, the American team, one of the, the girls lost their father in the World Trade Center that year. And some of the girls carried the tattered flag from the World Trade Center into the opening ceremonies. And so I just think that they understood the importance of the flag. And while every team has 
amazing people on it and every team has the other end of the spectrum on it. I think people like Cammy Granato, who was their team captain at the time, would have never allowed that to happen. I think every team mm. has the ability to um, stray sometimes, but that's why you have captains and leaders. And so that's not to say that some of them might not have thought to do that, but I just don't think it was, I don't know. I, I don't think that they had the character to do that, but it certainly worked and it motivated us. So it certainly at worked. At the end of the day, yeah. What, and you just touched on something a moment ago, and I think it's one of the great stories of the book, honestly, and it's probably not your favorite part because it wasn't certainly a happy thing for you, but the story of that game, huge game, maybe the biggest game Canada had played up until that point in women's hockey, and you get told you're not going to be starting, you're going to be the backup, and you're pretty, well, you're pretty open about how much that basically chewed your guts for not being able to have that opportunity. And I thought as I was reading that, athletes as a rule don't want to talk about when things bother them, they try to be pretty level-headed and, ah, it's okay. I'm just here for the team, whatever the team needs, blah, blah, blah. And I've never believed that. I mean, I believe that people will support the team, but I've never believed when they say, ah, whatever they need me to do, everybody wants to be playing and be impactful. I was, I was amazed and I was impressed that you were as open about that and explaining it. Cause I think that probably is a very common view among athletes. Well, in forward facing to the media, of course, that's how I was that's how you need to be, you know, you, you don't in that situation want to get into a place where you're derailing or upsetting your team. And so um, when I was told that I wasn't playing, of course it was devastating and it was hard. And um, in writing the book, I wanted to show, I wanted to bring the reader along to those emotions that happen when something like that is taken away from you, whatever it is, if it's a dream Um, it could be a person, it could, whatever you just believe so passionately in, um, when they, when that goes away, when there's a death, when there's, you know, hard things happen, we, we as humans, it is just so natural to feel these feelings. And I, I didn't want that to be untruthful. So I, you know, rewrote it and rewrote it and really tried to put myself in that moment of what did I really genuinely feel? And Hmm. when I was told, I basically went into the athlete's village and, had tears streaming down my face and I just felt like I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to turn to. And um, this was before cell phones, of course. And so, and you can't whine to a teammate because they're getting ready for the game. Exactly. And I didn't want to, you know, as, as much as you, you want that every situation and, you know, it's a human um, experience to not want whatever it is, your team to possibly go on without you. You want to, you want them to feel like this, this can't happen without you. But the reality is it does. It moves on without you. And so I had to find, find a way to come to terms with how can I now be of value? And for me, the way that that happened, it didn't happen instantly. And, you know, I wanted the reader to know that, that there's no magic lessons. There's no, uh, sometimes it's just, you just need some time. Um, but ultimately it is about being there for other people. And ultimately what do I remember about that gold medal is the service that I've provided to others, Hmm. the cheering, the uh, attempted inspiration, um, but feeling in the end that I was proud of how I played my role made all the difference. And that's what I try to share with people is that there's going to be moments like this that are not about you, that they're about something bigger or greater. And sometimes you just have to live vicariously through others to share in that success and to contribute. So it was really about trying to find a way to contribute in what was a devastating moment for me to be told my dream was over. 
Um, so I wanted the reader to come on that journey with me. And um, that's nice of you to say that you, you know, you felt it with me and I tried to make it as raw and um, build as emotion as I could. You know, I don't think I could have written or published a story like this while I was still on the team. Yeah, so after yeah. the fact, I want people to know that that is how most people feel. And, you know, when we get fired from a job, we, um, you know, break a relationship. There's, there's so many moments that are very similar that we often don't talk about, but that are real. And, um, yeah, so I wanted uh, to be truthful and honest and to show that it really was about the other people and about my teammates lifting me up to help me through that moment as well. There are so many stories. I wish we had like two hours, but I want to jump to something else first because we could. I mean, we could do this all day long and and with stuff that people, moments people remember because, I mean, people watch. And 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 that is where I want to go next because that, that seems to be one of the things that I'm always scratching my head about, uh, which is, I mean, you were one of the people who helped found the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Uh, you've been a player at college. You've been a pro player. You've been an Olympic athlete. You've been on the business side trying to get women's hockey going. The first line of your epilogue in your book is women's hockey sits in a precarious position. And, you know, I, I, that's been the case now, Sammy Joe, it seems for a decade, for two decades. And I, why do you think that it is just so difficult for not Olympic women's hockey, because people watch, for professional women's hockey to get a foothold and to, to work? Well, you know, I wrote that epilogue two years ago, essentially, and uh, with this, it was right after the, the demise of the CWHL, and I, you know, I expected the state of women's hockey to be different than it was two years ago, but it is essentially is the same. And so I think what you said is um, twofold. One is you're right; it's in a very per- precarious position, but I see it as something more exciting that we can take this in any direction we want, and I think whatever the next step in women's hockey is going to be exciting. Um, I think when, you know, to say that women's hockey doesn't have a foothold is not necessarily characterizing it in the right way, because we have seen tremendous success at the club level and and the professional level. Um, And by saying, you know, I think that often women's hockey is seen as not working because a league folds. But the reality is that's a business that folds, not the sport of women's hockey. And so at all levels, growth levels are, are um, growing tremendously. When we finished uh, in our final year of the CWHL before um, essentially the board took it down, the, uh, the operational budget was $3.7 million. So there was a lot of money in women's hockey. There's a lot of people that watch women's hockey. And, you know, I always say to people, I'm not going to be a NASCAR fan, no matter how much you probably try to convince me to be a NASCAR fan. So we're not trying to convince a non-female hockey player fans to be female hockey player fans. Women's hockey fans, they're out there. Uh, 11 million people tuned in to watch the last Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. Um, Our local professional team, uh, if we played at big venues, could get in the thousands, three to 5,000 people um, at games. Um, So they're there. It's just a matter of having a sustainable league that the players – that the players and the fans, the fans know where the players are playing. So we do have well, a professional team now in Toronto, the Toronto Six, as yes. part of the National Women's Hockey League. There's also the PWHPA, in which um, there is lots of players uh, playing locally as well. And hopefully these two leagues, these two systems, um, come together on a certain level to create 
that next level of women's hockey in which- Well, why hasn't it? And that's that's the big question and people always point to that. Well, you've got these leagues how come it can never seem to come together? And we're, and, and you've heard this. I'm not telling you this for the first time. I, yeah. I guarantee you've heard this before. Why, why has that not happened? Why can it not happen? Well, it was together. So the current league, the NWHL, was a spring off of the previous CWHL. So I think as women's hockey grows, new business ventures uh, attempt to, to come into the marketplace, which we saw with the NWHL. Um, the NWHL housed many of these players that are now playing in the PW uh, who are choosing not to play because they don't like the business model. So something needs to kind of crack at the top and the PW wants to come under the NHL umbrella. They want to have the marketing machine behind them, which I think can be amazing. I'm just not sure how quickly that will happen. So my, my hope and my dream for the girls right across the board is that they have a place that they feel like they can make um, a full-time salary. Um, No, for sure. And and I I do wonder... Yeah. I do wonder where the NHL is in this. And I have often thought that. Well, that and the I think AW- we all do. That's the tough thing is, you know, if I knew, like you as a fan, I, you know, and I essentially am just a fan, if I knew what to get behind, I would go a gusto behind that because I have friends on both sides. And that's what I hate is that they're sides. That's, it just, to me, we're, we're fractured because of that. And I'm not going to say that necessarily one is better than the other. Um, because both have great attributes to them. But um, I want to know what the NHL's plans are, because if they are going to have women's hockey under their umbrella, I would get behind that 100%. And if they're not, then let's try to figure out something outside of that umbrella. But, you know, I am, like I said, I'm just a fan who is um, (laughs) just wanting to go and watch women's hockey live again and wanting to watch it on TV. So I'm hopeful and it's a tough time for the girls. I don't, I certainly don't envy them right now. It is so complicated. It is so difficult. And, and, and we have three members of the National Women's Hockey Team currently from around this area, Laura Fortino and Sarah Nurse and Renata Fast. And the sad part is, as I look at what's going on, I mean, this is a golden age for hockey in the Hamilton, Burlington area. And I'm, I can't help but feel that some of it in some ways is being wasted with all this time that now COVID, obviously, but some of the other stuff going on, it just... It, it, they're, they're too good not to be playing somewhere in some sort of professional league and, and, and lots of others too. That, that's just the local ones. Yeah, you also have uh, Elaine Chuli and Cheyenne D'Arcangelo who are playing for the Toronto Six in the National Women's Hockey League. Mm. Um, and these people all know each other. That's what's hard. These people are having to make difficult... Diffi- and so Elaine and Cheyenne used to play for the Team USA and both had to make a difficult decision to break away from the PW to play the game they love. And that's hard. You don't want to put anybody in that situation. Um, so yeah, I like I said, I don't envy them. There are so many girls that... I think uh, we're just missing seeing them and how good they are. Um, And I know Sarah Nurse just got put on the PW uh, Council, the board of directors. And so hearing her voice has been awesome. Uh, When I was the general manager of the Toronto Futures, I got to uh, manage her. And so I'm excited for the future of these leaders that are having to work through these issues. But um, you know, time will, time will tell. And, uh, I just, yeah, like you guys, I just, I want to go out and just watch these girls play. The book is called the role I played Canada's greatest Olympic hockey team. Uh, and I love the fact that, and we got to let you go, but I love the fact that you didn't say Canada's the greatest Olympic women's hockey team, just Canada's Olymp- greatest Olympic hockey team. That's that did right, not yeah. go unnoticed. Uh, Sammy Joe small. I'll really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks Scott. I really appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
probably uh, sometime in your life, you have heard the story of Van Halen. Remember, Eddie Van Halen passed away the other week, but we've heard the story of Van Halen's notorious rider, the clause in their contract if they were coming to a concert for no brown M&Ms. They wanted M&Ms, but you had to take out all the brown ones was the specific instruction, which of course started a whole thing with, okay, who's got the craziest riders? Well, first of all, interesting little note about the Van Halen brown M&M. It wasn't, the story goes, because they didn't like brown M&Ms, which makes sense because M&Ms all taste the same. Doesn't matter what color, just in case you're wondering. The thought behind it apparently was this was a test of the facility and the people looking after it. They figured if they looked after the brown M&M thing properly and did that with enough care to remove all the brown M&Ms, we're confident all the other big stuff will be looked after smart, even though it sounded essentially crazy at the time. But what this helped to do was really create a monstrosity because people started hearing, other artists started hearing, Van Halen doesn't want brown M&Ms. They can get that? And now come the demands. Well, some of the demands over the years, seriously Looney Tunes. Let's put it that way. Let me start with, well, you know what, Ben? I will not give you the, should I give you the person first or, or have you guess who the person is? I'll try and guess the person. All right. I don't think you're going to get this one, but the first one, this, I'll give you a hint. A diva, a pop diva demanded that within her dressing room, she have a hundred white doves and a dozen to 20 kittens. Kesha. Mariah Carey. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently some places were. Uh, at some different venues, we're saying it's it it we can't really round up a hundred doves. <laughs> where <laughs> where are we getting a hundred doves, and what are you doing with them? But anyway, that that didn't always get done. Do you think um, they'd open the front door and all of a sudden just whoosh, all these all these doves come flying at Mariah Carey? Could be, could be. Uh, Beyonce. Oh, sorry, I forgot that. Oh, I, I gave that one away already. I'll I'll, fi- I'll fix myself here. Beyonce demands her dressing room be kept at seventy eight degrees. And as for chicken legs, heavily seasoned with cayenne pepper and rose-scented candles. I can among, respect that. Among other things. There's like th- then the list goes on and on. That's just the the high point. Um that one, okay. That one, Adele's is not actually very interesting. Um, okay, this guy, this this hip hop slash pop star who's been in the news lately requests a barber chair, Carmex lip balm, shower shoes. Um, and a slushy machine with mixes of Coke and Hennessy and Grey Goose and lemonade. Would that not be... all together? Coke and <laughs> Hennessy and Grey Goose and lemonade, not all together. Would that be Kanye West? That would be Kanye West. Yes. Who? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. That that's a boring one. Just blue drapes everywhere. Um, just have to stand those around all the walls. Everywhere you look, it's just blue drapes on blue drapes. That's Rihanna. And there's another one with Rihanna that I'll get to in a minute, I think, if we have time here, that she had more weird ones. These are just some of them. Uh, okay, here's one. A, s- <coughs> excuse me, a pop singer who just had a child not long ago, who on their food list, on her food list, uh, requires freeze-dried strawberries. Free- not fresh. I mean, fresh would make sense. Freeze-dried strawberries and lots of flowers, but under no circumstances may there be any carnations. Oh, how dare anyone bring carnations? I I honestly have no idea on this one. Katy Perry. Oh. Carnations are not to be allowed under any circumstance. 
Uh, here's an easy one, super easy one, because it makes all kinds of sense. Music legend, absolute music legend. And all he apparently asked for, I mean, there's a few things, but there's not a lot. There's really not a lot, but no fur, leather, or meat of any kind in his dressing room. Ooh, uh, Getty Lee. Paul McCartney, oh. ardent vegetarian, maybe vegan, I'm not sure, but ardent vegetarian for sure. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Um, Eminem, uh, I thought, you know, Eminem seems like one of those guys that would have a crazy rider. Not really. He just wants some weights and Diet Coke, basically, <laughs> and some lunch meat and bread. <laughs> I can see it now. It's just like an empty basement cinder block room. There's some dumbbells on the floor. And a little wooden table that's just got like a couple slices of lunch meat there. Uh, this this one, I'm not even going to have you guess because you'll never get this because she's back from the 70s and into the 80s. So it's way before your time. Grace Jones, who was unusual. She was eccentric. She was a, she was flamboyantly showy. I mean, it was all like she did the whole thing. She was a James Bond girl at one point. I can't remember which movie. Um, she requires... Six bottles of Louis Rodere Cristal Champagne, three bottles of French vintage red wine, three bottles of French vintage white wine, and two dozen oysters on ice, unopened. She wants to do her own shucking of the oysters. One thing I can say, and I feel quite confident in this, you could have gotten generic bottles of red wine Put them into the fancy bottles. She's not going to know. Never would have known. Never would have known. You could have saved a lot of money on that one. Um, this one, so, oh, I just did it again. Madonna, sorry, I jumped in. Madonna, you'll get to it. There's two interesting things Madonna demands. One is she has, apparently she brings all of her own furniture with her. So any hotel she's staying in, they have to remove all the furniture so they can move her stuff in. So it's just like home. That's, you know. I wish I had enough furniture to do that. And I wish I had enough money to just be like, I'm just going to move my entire place into an apartment. Like, how? Well, the, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like a lot of work, but she has a 200 person entourage, or at least she did at one time when these riders were going around. And one of the things was she demanded 20 international phone lines to call friends in other countries. Wow. That's not and sketchy I'm, at all. But why, if she's calling friends in other countries, why would she need 20 phone lines? You can only talk to one person at a time. Maybe 20 phones are also supplied in the room. This one connects solely to Switzerland. This one only goes to Swahili. This one only goes to China. This one to Australia. And they're I guess. all one number and only able to dial one other number. Uh, I, who knows? I mean, why not just one line with unlimited long distance? But oh, well. It's less fancy. Um, okay. Someone who uh, is married. He's a big star. One of the richest hip hop artists in the world. Married to another huge pop star uh his isn't all that weird except he just demands for himself seven dressing rooms oh uh dr dre very close married to another huge star i'm not jay-z oh jay-z Seven dressing rooms? What is Seven dressing rooms. So would one be only for pants? One's only for... Could be. Could be. Uh, here's one where someone needs two humidifiers, 10 bath towels, and an absolutely brand new toilet seat every time she goes into her dressing room. 
I was about to say that sounds like my rider, but no, no. <laughs> I wouldn't mind the new toilet seat. That, that's kind of gross, if not. Mary J. Blige was that one. That was uh, that. You probably wouldn't have got that one. Uh, let's see, uh, Lady Gaga. Shockingly, not too insane. Um, huh. I could have seen her being a little artsier with it, but eh. yeah. Uh, here's one, a, a, a star, she's still around, she's getting up there a bit, but huge star in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, um, demands her own separate wig room. Betty White. <laughs> Cher would be the, the wig room. <laughs> Betty White. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, okay, this, this one, see, I don't know if this one is even, is even true. This guy is a pop or, uh, sorry, a punk icon from the 80s and into the 90s and into the 2000s. Uh, his rider was 18 pages. Wow. Uh, the number one weirdest thing, he needed to have somebody dressed as Bob Hope to do impersonations of the dead comedian. <laughs> <laughs> just at will. I just need someone to I do need this. someone. Does it have to be uh, that, a good one? Uh, it doesn't say. Iggy Pop is the answer oh. to that one. Uh, Van Halen had their M&Ms as we go through here. A couple more. Let me go back to the other list. Um, we did that one already. Oh, this one. Uh, this diva, another diva, demands that before every concert, she have a police escort to the show. And, and this is a quote, under no circumstances are the vehicles to be allowed to en- encounter any delays due to traffic. Wow. How are you supposed to enforce that? Who, what diva... Would that might fall into that category in nineties and two thousands would be her era. Britney Spears, maybe very close. Oh. Who, who was sort of the other Britney Spears around that time? Lindsay Lohan, Christina I, I, Aguilera. Oh, I, I really don't know my celebrities. That right. well. Maybe the All only right. way to you can enforce that a very large bumper bar, just a huge brush bar yes, off <laughs> the front. All right. One more. Uh, and they believe that this one was a joke. That this band, heavy metal band, metal like slash metal band, thrash metal band, they believe this one was a joke that they were just playing because they they, they request among other things fifty thousand live bees, <laughs> ten ten cases of gogurt, a bow flex, a human skull filled with red hots, and a hundred snow white goats prepared for slaughter. <laughs> Would that be like Slayer or something? Slayer! Yes! Yes! Slayer! Yes! Is exactly. 50,000 live bees. I wonder if anyone ever followed through. They walk in them. <laughs> what are you guys doing? What, yeah, are you, Slayer. What, what are you doing, Philip? I'm counting the bees. We're at 23,467. Yeah, we sure. You came up 32 short on the bees. <laughs> We're out of here. Yeah. The uh, I don't know if they still do. I, I assume people are still doing the riders, but it seems like something that was a little more... 1980s, 90s, 2000s that maybe we've moved past, but who knows? The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.